Well, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 4, and I want to emphasize the fact that it's Romans chapter 4 to all those naysayers out there who said it was going to take seven or so years to make it through this uh, letter. Um, And just so you know, I've got a goal here in my mind that um, I've got four weeks before Kelly and I have the privilege of going to Fiji to... Uh, do a family conference for pastors there uh, with some of our dear friends, Rick and Kim Holland, and we've been invited by Michael C. Husen. You are familiar with that name, I know, uh, but the C. Husen's son, um, Michael, is getting ready to go there as a full-time missionary and, and really um, bring the whole uh, genre of biblical counseling to those islands there, and uh, so he's invited us to come down and, and do this a family conference for, for the pastors that they uh, minister to. And so, um, and then I'll take a break this summer from Romans as we typically do uh, because everybody's in and out and um, try to um, want to provide some continuity to our Sunday morning study. So, all that to say, I've got four weeks to get through chapter four and chapter five because it seems like a very natural break. Um, for us to uh, end at the end of chapter 5, and that will complete the uh, entire first section of the book of Romans, all about, which is all about justification. And then starting in chapter 6 uh, through chapter 8, we launch into the whole subject of sanctification. So I don't want to leave you hanging right in the middle of uh, justification. We'll hopefully be able to finish that up. And so uh, as I see it, Lord willing... We've got a couple weeks here in chapter 4 and a couple weeks in chapter 5, which is not uh, out of the question if I can just control myself and uh, not uh, share everything that I learn and uh, everything I study from uh, this great letter. But um, this morning, I want to uh, read for you the entire chapter uh, of Romans chapter 4. Uh, because it all goes together. Uh, it's, it's one big argument that Paul is making here, and I want us to make sure we see it uh, in its entirety. And so let me just read for you Romans chapter 4, um, verses 1 through 25. Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? 
not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the, uh, the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that I may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which has been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Father, this is indeed a mouthful, but we know your spirit put this in the mind and heart of Paul to pen here in this letter, and so we, we need your the same Holy Spirit to illuminate us now to understand what he meant by what Paul said here. And as we consider the life of Abraham, Lord, may we see uh, in him the gospel many years before Jesus ever came. I pray this in his name. Amen. Well, it's impossible to understand the point of the Bible, which is simply God's incredible plan of salvation, without understanding the story of Abraham. Abraham is one of the most well-known biblical characters, mainly because of the significant role he played in the drama of redemption. And um, apart from the references to Christ and quotes from Moses, uh, the names that are mentioned most in the New Testament are in this order. Paul, Peter, John the Baptist, and guess who? Abraham. And in order to, to make sense of these many references to Abraham in the New Testament, especially Paul's use of him uh, here in Romans 4 as a prime example of justification by faith, we need to go back to the Old Testament and look at his story, which is found in Genesis chapter 12 through uh, chapter 25. 
And uh, obviously we won't read um, his story in its entirety, but just um, try to uh, be like a rock kind of skipping across the surface of Abraham's life and, and just picking out the high points here. But I think the, maybe the simplest way to get our minds around this amazing life of this amazing man um, is to see his life unfold in four episodes, uh, all of which are related to his faith in the promise that God made to him that he would be the father of a great nation, which would become a blessing to the entire world through their Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ. And so, first of all, we see the promise, this promise declared, this promise declared in Genesis 11, verse 27, and so we'll just get the context here, uh, pick up the context before we get to chapter 12 and read the promise itself. In Genesis 11, verse 27, it says, now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, there's our man, Nahor and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, and son of Haram, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went out together from the Earl of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, this marks the beginning of the formation of God's people, uh, Yahweh, chose a pagan idolater who worshipped Nana or Nanar, the Mesopotamian moon god, uh, to worship him as the one true God. And we learn that from Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, that Terah, Abraham, Abram's father, was an idolater. He was a, a worshiper of idols. And so God commanded Abram to leave his homeland and take his wife uh, and family to live in the land of Canaan. And he promised to make him a great nation that would bless all the other nations on the earth through his offspring. Notice chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abraham, or Abram, excuse me, was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they, which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. And so we see, first of all, the promise declared. Uh, secondly, we see now the promise clarified, the promise clarified, and uh, we see that in, in Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, this is after Abram and Lot realized they could not uh, 
all lived together in the same place. There were just too many of them and too many cows and sheep and oxen and all the things. And so uh, Abram said, you can pick anywhere you want to live and I'll go wherever you're not. And uh, after he graciously uh, deferred to Lot, uh, God came to him and clarified his promise in verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. And so he uses this analogy of dust to to illustrate the staggering number of his descendants. And he also clarified the specific boundaries of Abram's inheritance. But then he went on to explain how Abram and his wife would have a son of their own. And he made that promise official by entering into an unconditional covenant with him through a special sacrifice. We see that in chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is a leaser of Damascus? And Abraham said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. So you've got particles of dust on the earth. You've got all the stars in the sky as illustrations of this Uh, of the number of descendants. And then notice verse six, and this is the key text. Then Abram believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Earl of Chaldeas to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of the prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Notice verse 17, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. This was an ancient custom that when two people made a covenant with one another, uh, they would cut an animal in half and they would put the pieces opposite one another, and they would each take turns walking in a figure-eight pattern 
through these uh, two pieces of sacrificial animal. Well, notice only God, God was the only one who walked, if you will, in that pot of fire through that figure eight pattern, and he did that while Abram slept. What was the point of that? That this promise, this covenant that God made with Abraham was unconditional. It had nothing to do with what he did or didn't do. God was going to do what he said he would do no matter what Abraham did or didn't do. And so we see the promise declared, the promise clarified, and then thirdly, the promise confirmed. The promise confirmed in Genesis 17, and this is um, um, uh, close to 25 years now since God had made his initial promise to Abraham about uh, a child, and while he was waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise, Abram was wrongly influenced by his barren wife Sarai, and he committed adultery with her maid Hagar, who conceived a son named Ishmael. Which, by the way, was the father of all the Arab nations who have been Israel's arch enemies throughout their history. How ironic when we disobey, when we take matters into our own hands, uh, the consequences of our sin may last a long time. And that has been the case with the nation of Israel to this day. Now, what we see here in chapter 17, is that God reappeared to Abram and reaffirmed the promise that he had made to him, and in the process, God changed his name. Let's read this in chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the, with the, be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be, the, be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession and I, and I will be their God. Now, interesting, uh, I think the ironic thing about this, this naming or renaming of Abram, Abram meant the father of many. Can you imagine how embarrassing that was for Abram all those years when, someone, when he met someone and they said, what is your name? And, 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 oh, my name's Abram, which meant father of many. Oh, how many children do you have? None. And uh, again, it must have been very embarrassing in light of the fact that he and Sarah were sterile. They, they had no children. And now to add insult to injury, God changed his name to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. Not just the father of many, but the father of many nations. And along with this name change, God instituted circumcision as a physical sign to distinguish all of his descendants 
from the rest of the people in the world. Notice verse 9, God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You are and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised uh, in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you and every male among you is eight uh, and every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or is who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And then he goes on to not only change Abraham's name, but to change his wife's name. Verse 15, then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall call her name Sarai. You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abram, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old, and Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And so here was a man and a woman, a husband and wife, 99 years old and 90 years old. Can you imagine if you were that old and somebody told you you were going to have a kid? You'd be like, yeah, it's the funniest thing I've ever heard. You're crazy. It's impossible. Exactly. That was what this promise was all about. So we see the promise declared and the promise clarified, the promise confirmed, and then lastly, the promise tested. The promise tested, and we already read this passage earlier before communion, Genesis chapter 22. God fulfilled his promise by blessing Abraham and Sarah with a son, but then God asked Abraham to do the unthinkable. And in order to test Abraham's faith in the promise that he made, God required him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, even though he was the one through whom the promise that God had made to him was to be fulfilled. Talk about scratching your head there for a little bit and saying, God, are you sure you know what you're up to? which is a common experience for most of us, isn't it? When God throws a curveball at us and we're like, hey God, you sure you know what you're doing up there? And yet Abraham immediately obeyed and just when he was about to kill Isaac, God mercifully intervened and provided a ram as a substitute to die in Isaac's place. And as I mentioned earlier, this foreshadowed how God would graciously provide Jesus as a substitute to die in our place on the cross. Notice how this account concludes in Genesis 22, verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time, 
from heaven and said, Be my, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11. With all that in our minds, I want you to see that those four episodes that we just looked at in Abraham's life correspond to the four times the writer of Hebrews mentioned that Abraham acted by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, we know as the the hall of faith where uh, the writer lists all these great saints of old, um, saints of the Old Testament who, who did what they did all by faith. Notice what he says about Abraham. Hebrews 11, verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. That was when the the uh, promise was declared. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And this is where we saw the promise clarified. Verse 11, by faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even one man, even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And so that was when the promise was confirmed. And then finally, jump down to uh, verse 17. By faith... Abraham, when he was tested, this is when the promise was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Interesting to think about that what was going through Isaac's, or excuse me, Abraham's mind when he was about to plunge that knife into his son Isaac, that surely the only way that God could be faithful to his promises that he's made to me, if I kill the son through whom the promise was given, he's going to have to raise him back to life. That's some faith. And so we see Abraham throughout the scriptures being portrayed as this hero of faith, this great man of faith. And yet, like every believer, Abraham's faith was by no means perfect. It wavered at times. And um, I skipped over a few uh, sections back in in Genesis um, that demonstrate 
that his faith was not perfect. When he first arrived in Canaan, you may remember there was a severe famine. And rather than trusting God to provide for him and his family, he went down to Egypt. It was a lack of faith. At the same time, he was afraid that the Egyptians might kill him because his wife, Sarah, was such a beautiful woman. He told her to lie and say that she was who? His sister. He told the same lie on another occasion to protect himself. Again, a lack of faith, a lack of trust. Uh, We already saw how he failed to trust God's promise that he and Sarah would have a son of their own, and he foolishly followed uh, Sarah's suggestion and took matters into his own hands and had an illegitimate child with Hagar. And so I appreciate the fact that the Holy Spirit didn't inspire Moses to airbrush or or Photoshop um, Abraham, so he appeared in Scripture as this this flawless man of faith. And yet every Jew in Paul's day revered Abraham as their great patriarch and considered him the most righteous man who ever lived. As the founding father of the Jewish nation, in the mind of the Jews, he was the ultimate example of a godly man who was accepted by the Lord based on how he lived. In fact, the Jewish rabbis actually taught that Abraham was perfect and he didn't need to repent of anything. And according to oral tradition and Uh, the Mishnah and some apocryphal books, uh, it was believed that Abraham was sinless. This is Jubilees, chapter 23, verse 10, and you can see why this never made it into the canon. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Not true, right? How about this one? This is Kedishim 4.14. We find, quote, we find that Abraham, our father, had performed the whole law before it was given. Doesn't make it into the canon for that. But what's going on here? From the Jews' perspective, there was no better illustration than Abraham that a person is justified by works. That's what they had been taught. That's what their writing said. But from Paul's perspective, Abraham's life proved the exact opposite, that a person is justified by faith apart from works. And so here in Romans chapter 4, Paul, being the brilliant attorney that he was, used the Jews' star witness against them. To prove that justification or salvation is by faith and not by works. And and we know that as we've studied this letter so far, that, that from the very beginning, Paul sought to make it clear that the gospel that he preached was not some novel idea that he had come up with, but it was in complete harmony with what had been previously promised in the Old Testament in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, I was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then we saw last, uh, in the last chapter, chapter 3, verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. 
And then he concludes the letter in Romans 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God and has been made known to all the nations. Paul was simply making it clear that his gospel was right in line with God's promise to Abraham. In fact, Paul viewed Abraham as a key figure in an accurate understanding of the doctrine of salvation. In other words, you can't understand the doctrine of such justification by faith alone unless you understand the life of Abraham. Turn over to Galatians real quick. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. And here we see Paul once again quoting from the story of Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, 6, that key verse. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Notice he goes on, therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. Listen, this is the, I'm preaching the same gospel that God preached to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. This is the gospel according to Abraham. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith, on the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse 15, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise, for if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So that's a whole lot of background to why Paul would take an entire chapter in his letter to the believers in Rome to focus on Abraham's foundational role in the gospel. Now, this is Paul's theology 101 here, and Abraham is smack dab in the middle of it all. And uh, we, we know that Paul has just got done with what many believe is the most important section in Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. 
Some say even the most important section of the whole New Testament, maybe even the whole Bible. And uh, it's, it's really the clearest, most concentrated summary of the truth of justification by faith alone in all of Scripture. And, and Paul knew that some would naturally take issue with what he said or have questions about his teaching on justification by faith alone. And last week we saw in verses 27 through 31 how Paul answered some questions or objections that he anticipated would be asked most likely by uh, his Jewish readers. And he reaffirmed in no uncertain terms that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Look at verse 28. It couldn't have been any clearer. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Apart from doing good things to earn or merit God's favor. That statement in verse 28, I think, is the climax of the entire argument that Paul has been making in the first three chapters. And now here in chapter 4... He supported this critical statement by examining how Abraham was justified to show that salvation has always been and has only been by faith. And again, if the Jewish eyebrows were already raised, now their brows were going to become furrowed (laughs) because they naturally assumed that Abraham... And everyone else in the Old Testament was saved by works, by keeping the law. But according to Paul, Abraham served as the greatest Old Testament illustration of justification by faith alone. And and we've gotten used to hearing this word faith used over and over again. It was used eight times in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. And now in chapter 4, the words faith and believe occur 15 times in this chapter. Why do I point that out? Well, just to show you that Paul's focus was clearly still on this topic of justification by faith alone, which was exemplified by the life of Abraham. I think one commentator summarized it very well. He said this, By using Abraham as a supreme scriptural example of justification or salvation by faith alone, Paul was storming the citadel of traditional Judaism. I mean, he was just storming the gates of Judaism. By demonstrating that Abraham was not justified by works, the apostle demolished the foundation of rabbinical teaching that man is made right with God by keeping the law that is on the basis of his own religious efforts and works. If Abraham was not and could not have been justified by keeping the law, then no one else could be. Conversely, if Abraham was justified solely on the basis of his faith in God, then everyone else must be justified in the same way, including you, including me. And that's where all of this, it seems like some history lesson that has no bearing on our lives today. You can't miss the last three verses of chapter 4 where he begins talking about us and how this all relates to, how this all applies to us and our salvation. And so the way I want us to look at this chapter, starting today and next Sunday, is that 
Paul presented four facts regarding how Abraham was justified or made right with God to prove that the only way anyone can be saved is by faith alone in Christ alone. We're going to see in verses 1 through 8 that Abraham was not justified by works. In verses 9 through 12, Paul makes it clear that Abraham was not justified by circumcision. In verses 13 to 17, uh, Paul makes it clear Abraham was not justified by the law. And then finally, the remaining verses, we see how Abraham was not the only one justified by faith. He was simply an example of all of us who can also be justified in the same way. I think you'll also notice as we go through chapter 4 that Paul was not just um, supporting verse 28 of chapter 3, that statement, we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, but he was also expanding on the answers that he gave to the questions that his imaginary heckler posed in those last five verses um, of, of chapter 3. Because we're going to hear about boasting, we're going to hear about circumcision, and we're going to hear about the law. And so let's just kind of wade into this a little bit with the time we have remaining. And look at this first um, fact about how Abraham was justified. Uh, namely, Abraham was not justified by works. Look at verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? What, what was his experience? What was Abraham's experience? I mean, no one was more righteous than him. Let's consider his personal testimony. Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Again, we covered this last week in verse 27 of chapter 3. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. God designed salvation in such a way that none of us could boast. We, we couldn't take any credit for it, but he gets all the glory for it, and he's just reiterating that with, with, with Abraham, that if he was justified by works, he, he would have something to boast about. He would, he would have a reason to pat himself on the back for earning his own right standing before God through his own effort. By the way... If you are familiar with the book of James, there's a, an apparent contradiction here uh, because in James chapter 2, verse 21, James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? I think that's why Martin Luther felt like James, the book of James, didn't belong in the canon. He wanted to rip it out of his Bible because it seemed to contradict Paul's teaching of justification by faith alone. Well, what's going on here? How are we to reconcile what Paul said about Abraham not being justified by works, but what James said about Abraham being justified by works? Well, I think the difference is that Paul was talking about faith without works and James was talking about faith that works. Big difference. And the best way I've ever heard it put, and I think it was Chuck Swindoll's little study guide that I read it, he said it this way, that Paul and James were defending the gospel back to back against two enemies 
coming at them, coming at the gospel from two opposite directions, legalism and antinomianism. And Paul was defending the gospel against legalism, those who said you had to do something in order to be saved. And James was defending the gospel against antinomians who said, you know what, the law doesn't matter. And, and if you were saved by grace alone, uh, it doesn't matter how you live your life. And so Abraham was justified or made right with God when he believed God's promise concerning his future son. And after Isaac was born, Abraham's faith was justified or verified, is probably a better way to say this, by his willingness to offer him up as a burnt sacrifice to God. In other words, his obedience to God's command proved that his faith was genuine, that he was a true believer. And so that's how I reconcile that in my mind. Hopefully, uh, that's sufficient in your mind as well. But look at verse 3, and this is the key verse here, for what does the scripture say? What does the Bible say? What does the Old Testament say, Paul says? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Again, he's quoting Genesis 15, 6. He quotes it again in verse 9, uh, and also in verse 22. And what Paul was reminding his Jewish readers was that Abraham believed the promise that God made to him that he would have countless offspring, one of whom would be the savior of the world, namely Jesus Christ, through whom all the promises of God would be fulfilled. And because of that belief, it says that it was credited to him as righteousness. This is, uh, again, the word where we get the word imputation, um, it means to credit or count something. Um, it, it was a banking term used to describe a, a sum of money that was transferred or credited to someone's account. Um, this word is used 11 times in this chapter. Um, you, you can see it throughout uh, these 25 verses over and over again. He uses this word credited or counted. And, and again, this is uh, the doctrine of imputation, that our sin was credited or transferred to Christ's account and Christ's righteousness was credited or transferred to our account. He became sin, right, who knew no sin so that we could be the righteous of God in him. And notice that the transaction that took place between God and Abraham had nothing to do with any work that he did to earn his salvation, It was simply based on his faith in the promise that God had made to him, which ultimately we know was the promise of Christ, who would be the substitute for our sin and be that lamb that was sacrificed in our place. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. So Paul just borrowed a, a basic analogy from everyday life. When, when you get paid, you don't thank your employer for being gracious to you. Thank you so much for paying me. No, you deserve to get paid for all the time and effort that you invested in your job. You earn your paycheck. It's not a gift. You earned it. 
But notice verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. To do no work, he says, to the one who, to the one who, um, who does not work means that we don't rely on our own good works to make us right with God. We realize there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. There, no matter how hard we work or how many good deeds we do, we will never be acceptable, acceptable to God on the, on, based on our, our merit. And so knowing that our, our, our best labors will never fulfill God's righteous demand, we simply depend solely on Christ's work on our behalf. And when we do that, we don't work, we trust, we have faith, God justifies the ungodly and credits our faith as righteousness. By the way, the reason why God doesn't justify godly people, because there are none. All he's got to work with is ungodly ones. So no one, there's no one godly enough to justify themselves. We must be justified by God. We must be declared righteous or innocent before him. And that's what it means when he says his faith is credited as righteous or he, those who believe in him, he, he justifies the ungodly. Again, this is the doctrine of justification where God declares us righteous before him. Now again, listen carefully, okay? At the moment of our salvation, our justification, if you will, we don't actually become righteous. Do you still sin? Are you perfect? No. So what does that mean? We don't actually become righteous. We're merely pronounced righteous. We're viewed as righteous. And this is an important thing to understand because in the Roman Catholic Church, they teach that, that, that we are infused, righteousness is infused in us. In other words, we become righteous. No, it's not, righteousness is not infused, it's, it's imputed. In other words, we simply experience a change in status, not a change in character. But our new status in the sight of God results in a new way of life marked by good works. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that we should walk uh, in them or do those good works which he's ordained for us to do. How or when do we become righteous? After we're pronounced righteous, after we're justified, we progressively become more and more righteous through the process of what? Sanctification. We are becoming righteous right now as believers. We are being sanctified. So we've been justified. We've been declared righteous. We've been pronounced righteous. We're viewed as righteous in God's eyes. But now we're living out the process of becoming who we are in Christ. I think it's also important to remind us that, that faith is not the cause or the ground of our salvation, 
or justification. It simply is the means or the instrument or the channel by which righteousness is received from God. I mentioned last week, it's like the straw, right? The straw doesn't save you, right? The water saves you. It's not our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith, who is Christ. And then look at the last verse, and we'll, we'll end with this. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Now he gets another Old Testament saint in the mix here because he wants us to know that what happened to Abraham was not unique to Abraham. David had the same experience. He's just one more example of how God justifies people apart, uh, by faith apart from works. And he goes on here in verses 7 and 8 to quote from one of David's psalms of confession after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, Uriah. And this is a quote from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. David knew that there were no prescribed sacrifices in the law to atone for the sins of adultery and murder. If you committed either of those two sins, you were to be stoned to death. You deserved the death penalty. And so he know, David knew he deserved to be killed, and, and so all he could do was cast himself on the mercy of God to have his sins forgiven. And when he did that, I think he did that in Psalm 51, I think the greatest prayer of confession anywhere in the Bible, he, can, he, just, he just cried out to God for mercy, and God forgave him. And I think he wrote Psalm 32 after the fact, talking about how happy he was now that God no longer held those sins against him. And rather than counting David's sins against him, God covered his sin and provided him a full pardon, not based on anything David did, but as a, as a free gift of grace. David experienced the, what you could call the joy of imputed righteousness. God didn't count his sins against him, which also meant that he counted or considered him right with God. And so Paul uses David as an example of how we can be justified by faith apart from works. When we confess our sin to God and confess our faith in Christ as the only one who can take away our sin and make us right with God. And when we do that, God counts or credits our sin to Jesus and at the same time, he counts or credits Jesus' righteousness to us. John said it best in 1 John 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. What's the, been the whole point of chapters 1 through 3 in Romans? Hey, guess what? You're a sinner. And so John says, listen, if you, if you say you're not, you're deceiving yourselves. 
But then he says, if we confess our sins, and to confess our sin means to agree with God about our sin, that yes, we are a sinner who deserves to die and go to hell. I agree with you. Amen to that. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sin, when we agree with God that we're sinners who, who deserve to be punished, to experience His wrath, and we seek His forgiveness by His grace alone, casting ourselves on His mercy, He'll wipe away all of our sin, and not just our sin, but even the guilt of our sin. And that is the path of true joy and happiness in life. Do you know that joy? Do you know that peace? Do you know that happiness of having your sins forgiven? Or are you sitting here this morning living under the guilt of unconfessed sin? See, if you're already a Christian who's trusting in the sacrifice of Christ, that he made for you on the cross to forgive your sin, you simply need to confess your sin and repent of it. And that's what many of us were doing when we were taking communion, right? Just confessing our sin and claiming the blood of Jesus on that sin and dealing with ongoing sin in our life. But if you have yet to commit your life to Christ, you couldn't take communion this morning because you know you're not a believer, then what do you need to do? You need to confess to God that you're a sinner, and confess your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus as the means that God has provided for you to be forgiven for your sin. That's the gospel according to Abraham. That's the gospel according to Paul. That's the gospel according to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... um, just your word and how intriguing it is as we study it and see how it's all connected together and it all comes together to explain your incredible plan of salvation. And I pray that if there's anyone here today who who is living under the guilt of unconfessed sin, that they, they, they know they're a sinner, or maybe they're denying the fact that they are a sinner and they don't really need a Savior, or that they would see that they're missing out on the blessing that you intended for all of us when we would simply agree with you about who you say we are and what you say we need, and that is Jesus as our Lord, as our Savior and that you would grant them genuine repentance and faith today, and that, Lord, you would, based on their faith in Christ's sacrifice in their place, that you would credit to them your righteousness. Lord, I pray you'd forgive us for our lack of faith at times as believers. Lord, that you would uh, increase our faith, that you would help us to be more faithful to live out your word and to share your word with others so that they too can know the joy and the blessing and the happiness of being forgiven for their sin. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.